Welcome to AUSA's Army Matters Podcast, focusing on what's important to the total Army community. We bring vital Army conversations and interviews on issues relevant to soldiers, military families, and all of you amazing Army supporters. Rotating each week, our show includes Soldier Today, Leading Great Teams, Family Voices, and Thought Leaders. Let's tune into the show. I held the man's bloodless gaze. He had a dull fade in his eyes. He was still breathing, but not for long. I knew he was finished. It's October 15, 1968. We're somewhere over the Mekong Delta, en route to the firebase moor in the Republic of Vietnam. Our Brigade S3 chopper shaved the treetops. AK rounds plinking the fuselage, parting shots from his comrades nestled deep in the sprawling jungle below. And there the dying man was, on the cabin floor, laid out at my tired feet. This captain of the NVA, the North Vietnamese Army. His left side shot up pretty bad. Blood coated his skin like dark honey. I held his gaze fast. Colonel Jirasi, my commanding officer, was on the battalion net, calling ahead to make sure there'd be a medic on the pad ahead of our arrival. Not that it would do any good, this guy wasn't going to make it home. And in a moment, all sound drowned out. An eerie quiet fell over the cabin, and I realized we were flying with the troop doors slid shut. The silence seemed to crash over me like thunder. The dying man never let his eyes leave my own. I wondered what kind of pain he was feeling. Regret? People? Those he'd be missing worrying about in his last minutes of life? Wife? Children? The war he'd given them all up for. Slow and shaky-like, his arm rose toward me. Bloody fingertips brushed against my wrists, trembling in their thirst for human contact. I hesitated. Then his hand took harbor in my own, and I tightened my grip around it, holding it there. In that moment, he was no longer the enemy, and I was no longer his. The war between us was over for all time. I held his hand until his last breath left him. And then I let him go gently and placed his arms back across his body and slid my palm over his eyes and closed them. God knows how many of that man's brethren I had slain. I had shot them, called down artillery and airstrikes on their positions, obliterated them right off the face of the earth. But for that last silent moment, I held this dying man's hand because he was a fellow soldier, fighting for his country, and now laying down his life for it. Hello, everyone. I'm Joe Craig, and welcome to this episode of Army Matters. The clip you just heard is a reenactment of the opening pages of the new book, Warfighter, the story of an American fighting man, by Colonel Jesse L. Johnson and Alex Holstein. They're both here today to talk about the book. The book tells the story of Colonel Johnson's 40-plus year career, from the front lines of the Vietnam War to the deserts of Iran and Iraq. I've read the book, and it's an incredible glimpse, not only into the feats of Colonel Johnson, but the book also provides an overview of American military history, especially special operations, over the past 50 years. Colonel Johnson, Mr. Holstein, welcome to Army Matters. 
Thank you for having us, Joe. Really appreciate it. Colonel Johnson, the fact you played pivotal roles in so many major military operations over the past 50 years really makes your memoir stand out. What made you decide to finally tell your story? Some people who'd worked for me tried to convince me of that, and I started it about 20 years ago, and I didn't know anybody was interested in it, and I wasn't going to write a book on it. And how did you get involved, Mr. Holstein? Exactly. As Colonel Johnson said, he had sort of had a false start with a writing some notes down and, and a manuscript that outlined his entire service in terms of chronology and certain events that he then filled in further when we started the interview process. But it was really a guy named Mike Williams, who is a lieutenant commander in the United States Navy, who served as the colonel's deputy J-2 um, at the joint level at SOCSENT, Special Operations Command, Central Command, during the Gulf War when the colonel was uh, reporting directly to General Schwarzkopf. And Mike and I had worked together on a number of scripts in the writing world. And he said, you have to write this guy's story. He's an amazing hero. And he introduced us. And sure enough, he was right about what an amazing hero Colonel Johnson is. Absolutely. It, it is an amazing uh, story, as you say. Now, Colonel Johnson, I'm wondering just uh, you know, to start with, what inspired you to join the Army? I was a young guy in Arkansas, and my brother had been in the 11th Airborne Division. So uh, he took me with him to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I watched how they did things and decided I wanted to be a paratrooper. The book's filled with so many remarkable stories. One that stands out from your time as a young paratrooper. It's 1968, it's the middle of the Vietnam War, and you have to find your own company in the midst of a firefight to be able to help them out. Would you share that story with the listeners? I had been somewhere to a meeting, and we were flying back to that area, and uh, I had to join 19 people of my company who was isolated. So the helicopter dropped me off, and I knew which direction to go, uh, but I got fired out of the route. I managed to marry up with them, and... uh, We uh, overcame the enemy contact in that area, and I uh, spent my time with those guys and really saved their lives or got involved with uh, saving their lives. If I could just weigh in, I, you know, he's very humble, but when he went in to get those 19 guys, he went in in a thunderstorm. They were about to be overrun. There was another company about to be overrun. When the helicopter pilot asked him where he wanted to be inserted, he demanded to be inserted at the point of heaviest contact because he knew that's where the 19 were isolated. He managed to link them up with the comp- back to his company as their company commander, and then he managed to link up with another company that had lost their commander, and he fought for the rest of the night. He got shrapnel in his chest, and they were going to medevac him out, and he fought for the rest of the night for nine hours to remain with his men to make sure that they were safe and until everyone got out. Colonel Johnson, the book details your experience in what was called the unit, officially the first special forces operational detachment Delta, popularly known as Delta Force. Why was it originally created and what was the role of Colonel Beckwith in the unit? It was created uh, for counterterrorism, created at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and uh, they had uh, 
picked a lot of people who spent their lives in special forces, but some of them who did not. You didn't have to be jump qualified. You didn't have to be ranger qualified to get into that unit. But uh, you had to be interviewed by Colonel Beckwith. They started two outfits, Delta and Blue Light, out of the 5th Special Forces Group. And Blue Light was just to cover a an outfit that we didn't have at that time frame. Like a gap stop. Yeah, they were filling in a gap temporarily, Blue Light. Beckwith had a unique background. You know, he had been with the SAS, and he had also commanded a battalion in the 101st of Vietnam. So he's the type of guy that uh, people would follow. He recommended to the Department of the Army that he should command the unit, he'd form it, and be on the ground by a certain period of time. Right. There was a lot of reluctance about having even a counterterrorist unit at all. There was a lot of uh, pushback on special operations at that time. The first test of Delta happened in November 1979, when the unit was assigned to rescue a group of hostages in Iran. You discussed the operation, codenamed Eagle Claw, in the book. The operation didn't succeed, but could you tell us more about it and what was the result of it? We got the word that Americans had been captured and uh, they had them in a prison somewhere. So we lined up, flew into Egypt, and then we went into uh, Iran to try to rescue the hostages. The biggest problem was that we didn't have any transportation to get everybody out. The helicopters had some problems. Although we had practiced it several times, this is the first time that uh, we really did it for real. Eagle Claw didn't finish because we had no transport to get us all in there and into Iran and then get us all out. One thing Colonel Johnson told me during the research for the book is that had they received orders to continue the operation after the helicopters at Desert One were disabled, he and A Squadron and B Squadron, they would have all gladly gone into Tehran. And I said, I asked him specifically, how would you have gotten out? And he said, we would have fought our way out. And um, yeah. I just think it goes to the courage and the bravery of all those who were involved in Eagle Claw and particularly the eight who lost their lives on that mission. But a couple of things came out of that. One, Colonel Johnson was involved in the formation of the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Two, that's where you have also JSOC eventually formed out of that in order to uh, improve our joint command capabilities at the special operations level, which is so important as we see the Russians don't have that capability, which is one of the reasons why they're doing so poorly in Ukraine. And three, you saw them uh, improve other uh, techniques and tactics uh, that they learned from the mission. So it was, a, it was a constant learning process. And I don't consider it a failure. I consider it an aborted mission that actually may have saved lives in the long term through the various um, lessons learned and the um, outcomes thereafter. Well, you know, they all blame themselves 
Beckwith wanted them to blame him for being aborted. When you were on the way home, Colonel, from the mission, Colonel Beckwith, he gave the men a, a good dressing down, purposely so, and he told you on the plane ride back to Andrews Air Force Base why he bawled the men out. And do you remember what he said to you on the way home? He said, they blame themselves and I want them to blame me because they can't carry it as their fault. I'd rather them hold out their hatred toward me than anything else. He definitely seems like a noble man and a remarkable leader. After the break, we'll continue talking with Colonel Johnson about his role in saving kidnapping victims, downed pilots, and his role in the Gulf War. Join AUSA, the Army's premier professional association and host of the largest land power exposition in the United States. AUSA is open to everyone, including all ranks and components. So whether you have a relationship with the U.S. Army or simply want to honor those who serve, you can learn more at AUSA.org join. We're back with Colonel Jesse Johnson and Alex Holstein, authors of the new memoir, Warfighter, the story of an American fighting man. One of the most fascinating tales in the book is the 1981 kidnapping of General James Dozier, Deputy Commander of NATO's Southern European Forces. You spent over 40 days searching for the man, working with Italian authorities, eventually rescuing him without firing a shot. What do you remember about the kidnapping's origins and the end result? Yeah, he was stationed in uh, Monaco, and uh, the terrorists came in to talk to him about redoing the elements of the plumbing system. He was trying to look in his book to see what they were saying in Italian, and his wife came in, and they held her hostage. Then they took him away, hid him in the uh, basement in a army tent so nobody would find him. He was found, and we looked for him for several days, 43 days, I think. Somewhere during that period of time, he had bought his wife an emblem from (laughs) Italians and presented that to her after he was released. Of course, my wife wanted to know why I didn't get her something (laughs) at the time. And then in the early 90s, you played a critical role in the success of Operation Desert Storm. After Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, the U.S. military was preparing its plans for the war. You came in with a suggestion. Can you tell us more about it? Well, Task Force Normandy, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, he's later a four-star General Cody, had directed they take me a flight out on his uh, Blackhawks. Now, see, they were very capable of doing things. When we rehearsed, we were up in uh, Panhandle of Florida rehearsing all this, planning on what we're going to do. And uh, they, uh, General Yosak had me to brief Schwarzkopf And I got up and said, I've solved this problem. I've reinstated the advisory program. And people started laughing. And Schwarzkopf said, don't laugh. I was an advisor. So anyway, we wound up uh, going into Kuwait. We were stationed in Egypt first. But then we went into Saudi Arabia, Schwarzkopf and uh, 
some of his staff had spoken with the king of Saudi Arabia, and they invited us in to see what we could do about it. So we went into Riyadh, used that as our headquarters, and it got too crowded there. And uh, I was asked to move my command to a different location. With Normandy, Schwarzkopf, they brought uh, Colonel Johnson to General Buster Glosson, who was in, in charge of a lot of the planning with the Air Force, the air campaign. And they asked uh, him if he would be able to uh, knock out the uh, Saddam's uh, early warning radar systems. And so uh, he, he went through a lot of different plans, uh, ideas uh, on the drawing board. And then they finally decided on the Apaches. He had a ride with them, as he said, with Colonel Cody. And then uh, Colonel Cody led the mission with, the, I believe it was eight Apaches with the backup from the CSAR that Colonel Johnson all arranged. And uh, that was the opening strike of the Gulf War. And it opened up a 20 mile wide gap for uh, our air power to go in and uh, do what they had to do to soften uh, Iraq's forces and degrade Saddam's military capability before we went in on the ground force over a month later, I believe. That was a crucial role you played in the kickoff to the war. But that wasn't it for you. I think a lot of people aren't familiar with the role of special operations in the Gulf War. Can you tell us a little bit about the other roles that special operations had during the conflict? We had uh, four missions or whatever it was of picking up down pilots. One was easy. He, was, he went in into the Gulf and they sent him in pretty easy to get him. And then some of the others were to different locations, like we went uh, 150 kilometers to pick up this one guy that was shot down. And also you did the advisory program with all the fifth group and some third group guys embedded with the uh, Kuwaiti forces. I think six armies of the Arab coalition were all commanded or all trained by uh, and kept in coordination and sync with the American forces by U.S. Army Special Forces that you embedded with the Arab forces? Yes, we uh talking about a period of time in the uh, Gulf War. That's when uh, the 101st and, uh, came in there and the uh, Delta Force part of them in, was employed to secure General Schwarzkopf's safety during that period of time. And the Kuwaiti resistance as well. You did the Kuwaiti resistance. Working with uh, uh, Kuwaitis was very interesting because they were wanting their country back. And I met with uh, General Jabir al-Khalid that I had attended Command General Staff College with him. He uh, had formed up his troops to get ready and he had asked Schwarzkopf two questions. When we get ready to retake Kuwait, I want the Kuwaiti forces to be in the lead, and I want Jesse Johnson to be with my forces as we take Kuwait. And Schwarzkopf said, okay, you got it. So that's how we wound up uh, attacking Kuwait the way we did uh, with all of the coalitions and attacking Saddam Hussein, and throwing him out of Kuwait. And that's how Colonel Johnson ended up being the first person to greet the Emir of Kuwait, Jabir al-Sabah, when he returned 
at the airport to to his liberated country. I was at the airport when the Amir returned and I met him at the airport when he got down and kissed the ground of coming back to his home country. An emotional aspect to go through is meeting the Amir and his staff there at the airport. But the Gulf War wasn't your last battle. After your retirement, you worked as a military contractor. What can you remember about those operations? Yeah, I worked for Prince Fahad bin Turkey out of Saudi Arabia. I worked with him. I worked with uh, several people who uh, started out young and worked their way up. General Ann Dunwoody was, uh, wound up as the first female four-star general in the Army. So she was a very important person to work with. Absolutely. And you ended up in Iraq on Rude Irish fighting al-Qaeda at 65 years old. Kuwait, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And uh, Lebanon, as a matter of fact. So I hit all those places. And that's not even in the book, which makes me believe there's enough for a possible sequel. Thank you, Colonel Johnson and Mr. Holstein, for talking with us and for sharing your stories. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. We've been chatting with Colonel Jesse Johnson and Alex Holstein, the writers of the just-released memoir, Warfighter, the story of an American fighting man. The book is available in bookstores and online. I'm Joe Craig from AUSA's book program, and thanks for listening. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Army Matters podcast on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. The Army Matters podcast series is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's professional association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission to educate, inform, and connect with the total Army, our industry partners, and our supporters of a strong national defense. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. Have a great Army day. Hua. <laughs>